Good morning. Today's scripture comes from Matthew 24, verses 45 through Matthew 25, verses 13. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time and then begins to beat his fellow servants and he eat and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our oil, our our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for us, for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said. Open the door for us. But he replied, Truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. All right, good morning. Good to see you all. Uh, This is our passage today. Mildly long. We're picking up some speed. Trying to finish Matthew. Um, This is session number 92 in the book of Matthew. Right? So, okay. So, um... Last week, um, I preached, I, th- I think it was the longest sermon I've ever done. It was uh, for Mother's Day. You got to go big. You know what I mean? And so we did eschatology. We did, we did Revelation. We did Daniel. We did Matthew 24. And uh, so this passage is a response to that passage. This passage is um, the world as you know it should not be. Um, things are not well. Um, there is suffering, there is pain, and things will be made whole again. And Matthew 24 is about some of the signs of like the growing pains as things move forward, what it will look like, how you should respond. And then there's sort of this discussion today about, and in the meantime, what do we do? How does this look? How are we to respond um, to the fact that things are still not as they should be, um, and we are still... Here in this broken world, living as people from, from the future, right? That's what I like to say. We're from the future. Um, nice to meet you. Uh, and, and so how are we going to live in this interim time? What does this look like? Um, and so that's what we're sort of dealing with today. While we're, we're 
not just a waiting for, but partnering with God to bring about this new reality in the world. Because um, I don't teach and I don't believe that God intends to destroy all of the earth and, and to fly a bunch of disembodied souls away. Um, the people who believed that were Plato, Aristotle, they were the Gnostics. They were the ones that believed this. It did work its way into like, it influenced Christianity pretty heavily. Um, go back to the uh, Reasoning on Hell series on our app. Hey, there you go. I like to advertise that whenever I can. Um, and uh, so I believe... And I teach that the, the center of God's work is here, and it will be here. Things will be restored, and things will be made whole, okay? Um, which means it matters how we live now. And so this whole passage is about, um, so what about the interim time? What do we do in the interim time? And so there are, there are two different sort of people that are described here. The first one, it goes like this, um, who then is the faithful and wise servant? This is the question that is being asked. Who is the faithful and wise servant? Um, that is the underlying question over the next two parables. And then there are two more parables after that, which we're going to get next week. Um, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper, t- proper time? So the setting here is an ancient Roman household. Um, there's a paterfamilia. It's a man who, who owned a household, basically. Um, he owned a wife. Yes, owned. Patriarchal society. He owned her. He owned all her slaves. He owned all his slaves and children. Um, and he had a slave who was like the sort of master slave, sort of, who was in charge of all the other slaves. And he would go on a trip. And while he's gone, this man would sort of speak and act as the paterfamilia of the household. And so in the meantime... Um, what does it look like for that person? And so he sort of puts us in the position of like, um, in the meantime, we're sort of the master servant, right? And how are we to act to live faithfully? So he uses this word, who then is the faithful and wise servant? The word faithful is very important. Um, it has scholastically, academically undergone a bit of a facelift in the last 50 or 60 years. It has sort of for a very long time been taught to be simply, simply a word that meant uh, sort of mentally ascending to an idea, right? Like, I understand it. That means you have faith in it. Or I sort of, I believe it means I understand it. Or to, to uh, believe in Jesus as your Savior, to receive Jesus, just means to like know information about what happened to Jesus, the church, and to say, yep, it's all true. And like, that's somehow what it means to have faith. It's not what it means to have faith in the first century. The word here uh, is this word pistos. Everyone say pistos. Yes, okay, now... Pistos is a, is a word, um, as it was used in the first century, it more often than not, almost always meant allegiance, um, alignment to a path, a way. Um, if you'd like to study this more, there was a great book I found last year on it, um, written by a guy named Matthew Bates, he's a New Testament scholar. He wrote a book called Salvation by Allegiance Alone, um, putting the word that was so heavily used by the reformers in its historical context and opening up a lot more about what it means to have faith in Christ. Um, and uh, it falls much more in line with you have a king, you have allegiance to that king, um, which means you align your life with sort of like if you have allegiance to your country, if you're like an American that has allegiance to America, you're going to sort of, there's an American way. You're going to take part in democracy. You're going to care passionately about the country. You're going to wave the flag and shoot the fireworks on the appointed days. So um, that's sort of what it means to have allegiance to your country. And you're going to usually like, defend and talk about how much better your way is than the other ways out there. Allegiance is very much sort of like this. Um, Faith. So um, there is a missionary to the Maasai tribe, and I've been reading his book lately. Uh, His name is um, 
Vincent Donovan. Um, he wrote a book. The book's about 35, maybe 40 years old. Um, and it's about his Catholic mission work in, the, in sub-Saharan Africa with a tribe called uh, the Maasai. Um, they still exist. They still live like this. This is probably the last generation of them um, now that will live this way because um, it's very difficult to live this way. Um, but he was working with the Maasai tribe, providing them schools, and they would t- talk regularly about God. And there uh, came to be some, some Maasai Christians, some followers of Jesus. And there's this description of faith that they have that awakened uh, Reverend Vincent Donovan. It, it awakened in him like this whole new understanding of what it means to have faith, what it means to believe in something, what it means to really believe in Jesus. Um, it has to do with the Maasai definition of belief. And so here's what he writes. He says, for a man really to believe like a li- uh, is like a lion going after its prey. His nose and eyes and ears pick up the prey. His legs give him the speed to catch it. All the power of his body is involved in the, temp- in the, in the terrible death leap uh, and the single blow to the neck with the front paw. And he pulls it to himself and makes it a part of himself. This is the way a lion kills this is the way a man believes. This is what faith looks like. And I think these tribal Messiah people understood faith far more than many of us do when they speak of it this way. It is going after something with everything you have. It's very much in alignment with what Jesus talks about with a man who finds the kingdom of God is like a man who finds treasure in field and sells everything he has to purchase this thing and make it his. It's, it's going at something with everything that you have. To be a person of faith, to be a person who believes and follows Jesus, um, it's a lot more akin to a lion tackling its prey and eating it than it is to figuring out something on a board and saying, yep, there's the answer, I believe it. And in fact, the person with the chalkboard is, is, I would argue, missing it. Um, So, uh, who is the faithful servant? That is the question that Jesus is asking. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household? Who really believes um, that the master is, 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 is leading this family, this household, to the path of honor and longevity and goodness um, and thriving? That's sort of the picture that they would have. Um, uh, to give them their food at the proper time. It will be good, verse 46, it will be good for that servant uh, whose master finds him doing so when he returns. So, for one of the servants, there's, 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 there's one option, which is there's a servant who is faithful who is doing the right thing. But what does it look like for a servant not to be faithful? Uh, well, we go to the next verse. But suppose the servant is wicked and says to himself, my master's staying away a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. So there's this picture in his head of like the master's leaving and he's just not coming back. And he starts to think that maybe he's in charge of this whole thing. And what he says goes. And he starts to be abusive and exploitative. And he starts beating the people around him as if they're not his family, his household, as if he's somehow above them and separate from them. And he's drinking the master's wine and getting drunk off of it and inviting the members of the household to do it with him and exploiting the, what, what, the, what the master owns. Um, and then there is, you know, this is, this is actually, it's the... It's the theme of like hundreds of like teen angst movies, right? Like the, the parents went away for the weekend, right? House party, house party two, house party three, Is it house party four, I don't know. Um, every Land Before Time movie, there's no parents. Uh, not really though. Um, 
And so many movies and TV shows have the premise of like, Mom and dad are gone for the weekend. We're going to have a party. Come on over. They speak in monotone really high on the phone. And they're excited. And everybody comes over. Somebody rolls in with a keg. And there's a big rager. But here's the plan. Parents have told you, we're coming back Sunday night at 10 o'clock. That's what they told you. So, which means Sunday night, like 6 o'clock, you're going to wake up and roll out of bed. And you're going to clean the house that you trashed. Right? Except the parents told you they're coming at 10 o'clock because they're really coming at noon. And they want to know their children. Like, what do you really like when I'm not here? Right? That's what the parents are doing. We all know this. We all plan on doing this one day. I plan on it. I can't wait. I'm going to tell my kids, coming home Sunday night. (laughs) Sunday morning is the day. Maybe Saturday night. Um, And this is like the big, this is the story, right? And what does the master find? Is he happy? Is he not happy? Right? Um, Well, what he finds, he's not happy. Okay, and then there's this brutal description here. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware, and he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, it's important to remember the thing I keep telling you all the time and remind you of. We don't make doctrine from parables, okay? They're sort of Jewish midrash. They're meant to, you're meant to think. They're metaphors. They are meant to... Um, describe the seriousness of a thing, but they're also set in their cultural day. There's a description here of someone, of the servant being cut up and thrown out with the hypocrites. Typically, when you cut somebody up to pieces, they die, but somehow he's alive and he's being thrown out with some hypocrites. It's really interesting. Well, what's going on here is the punishment. Um, so it's an honor and shame system. You lived or died by the honor that you had, whether or not you, people could trust you. And if you did something wrong, you betrayed people, you earned shame, you lost honor. So you have a servant here who is being exploitative. He is stealing from the master. He's drinking the master's wine. He's um, treating the house like it's his house, not like the way the master would treat it. Um, He's beating the people. He's abusing the master's situation. The punishment for stealing and for exploitation in the first century was usually cutting off a limb, usually a wrist, a hand, somewhere like at the wrist, um, oftentimes a foot. Um, And the whole point of that punishment was to permanently mark somebody physically in a way that they could not hide it um, so that they could not regain their honor again. It was something that a a master could do to a slave. Opa! It was something a master could could do to a slave. um, And that's... Uh, it, was, it was honestly very normal, and you would see these people who, these communities of, of shameful people with no honor sort of living together um, and um, enduring the scoffing of people, because they are hypocrites, is what it says. They're hypocrites. Um, weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's all kinds of descriptions in the Jewish world of this. Weeping, obviously, is sorrow and sobbing. Gnashing of teeth, it's anger. These are all the things that happen when the parents come home early from the party, Right? And they see it, and there is great weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, and so, um, this is the big picture. There is repercussions. There are um, ways you will be treated. You lose your honor, and you're relegated to the outskirts, never again to be where you were. Because um, you're not trustworthy. So, um, we bring all of this, we bring this whole thing to a close. Obviously, the servant who exercises allegiance, uh, allegiance to and faith in, the, in his Lord would be 
um, would be the one who is displaying sort of faithfulness, right? The one who does the right thing. And then we have another story, another parable where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Um, and it goes like this. The kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. The foolish ones took, the lamp, uh, took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. And the wise ones, however, took oil in jars uh, with, along with their lamps. And their bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. Now, um, there's so many things happening here that the first century people absolutely instantly get. It's sort of like if I were to say, um, if I were to mention like uh, the, the tossing of the bouquet, if I just say that, we all know what I'm talking about. Modern Western weddings, tossing the bouquet, people, find, people catch it, and, it, and um, if you just reference somebody who's like, yeah, she, she just caught the bouquet, like you're, you're sort of like, yeah, she's next in line to get married kind of thing. That's what you're saying, and you don't need all the other references, okay? You just need that one thing. There are so many references here that the people understand that we don't necessarily understand, so that's what we're going to take a few minutes to do. We're going to talk about the first century Jewish wedding and how it worked. Um, in the ancient world, weddings, in the first century especially, um, they did not happen in the middle of the day. They didn't happen in the afternoon. They happened at night. Um, the, there's a, there's a, a groom party, um, the, the groom and his, his sort of best men. And then there is, um, there's the, the bride and the bridesmaids all gathered together. They're all very young. Women were married about the age of, um, of like, 13 or, like 12 or 13 men. Um, they hit puberty. It's, it all has to do with when you hit puberty. Men would hit it. The boys would hit it about like 13, and then they get married. Um, so these are very young people, um, and they are together in separate places, in separate parts of the city, in de- separate houses, and... This is the day of the wedding. The women are getting ready. The men are in negotiations because remember, patriarchal society. This is the context in which the Bible is written. A patriarchal society. Um, it doesn't. Um, it, it's not promoting it. It's, it's set in it. It is speaking from that lens. So they're there and they're in the house and the men are having negotiations. I'll serve you, sir, a certain amount of time um, for in this way for the hand of your of your daughter in marriage. Um, and when they come to an agreement, there's a dowry paid or something is agreed to, and the father hands possession of the woman, yes, over to the man, and he now, um, her future groom here on, on this wedding day, is about to obtain ownership of this girl. Um, and we don't have to talk about all that today. Anyways, um, so this happens, and when this is done, this, this negotiation could take a very, very long time. And in the meantime, the women are waiting. Oftentimes it would be midnight, sometimes two, three, four in the morning. Sometimes the sun is coming up as this is happening. Finally come to an agreement, and then you start to hear a drum beat, and you start to hear some raucous dancing and some noise, and you hear these boys that are drinking, and they're walking down the street, and they've got torches, and they're traveling through the streets at night. This is the streets of, the ancient streets of old Jerusalem. Um, So to give you a picture of like sort of the um, the closeness of it all. It's very dark. These lamps would not have been here. It would have been pitch black. And so these men have torches and they're dancing through the streets and they're singing and they're banging drums. And there is, um, in the ancient world, there was a saying, everyone uh, from six to 60 follows the marriage drum. People start hearing the marriage drum and they realize the wedding is taking place. I've heard about this wedding and everyone leans out the window to see what is going on. They see these boys coming down the, the, the pathway uh, with their torches lit and they're singing and they're dancing and they're calling out for everyone to join them. People start coming out of their houses and they're dancing down the street and the boys begin to spread out because they've got torches and it's very dark. And as they spread out, there's crowds around each one because they've got the torch and they've got to light the way. 
all the way. They, and they're not going to take a direct route to the woman's house. This is a party. They're going to stretch this thing out. They are going to take the long route through the city. They're going to take all the side streets and call out to everyone. So everyone knows it is my wedding day. I am getting married. Um, and everyone's going to try, men, women, children, everyone coming out celebrating with them. There would have been rabbis teaching in the synagogues. There would have been rabbis gathered at houses with people sitting at their feet teaching them. And they would have stopped teaching because the wedding is sacred. It's a sacred picture of God and Israel and, and how God treated her. So they're going to stop and they're going to say, you have to take part in this marriage to celebrate this because it is a sacrament. It is a sign of what God did for his people. And the people all pour out into the streets and they follow and they're singing and they're dancing. Um, and it's exciting. It is, it's a peak event in the Jewish life in the first century. And so they come to the house where the women are. And the women are excited and they light their torches. Their torches would have looked like this. They would have been filled all the way up with oil, if you're a wise woman, um, all the way up with oil. And you're going to have a rag sitting around the rim there. You're going to take the rag and you're going to dip it in the oil and you're going to wrap it, sort of drape it around and you're going to light it. It's going to burn the oil in the rag for about 15 minutes or so. Um, And then you're going to have to stop. And blow it out before it burns the rag itself. And you're going to dip it back in the oil and wrap it back up. And you're going to light off someone else's torch. And you're going to keep rolling. Um, and the women are going to come out. And they're going to join the procession. They're going to light their lamps. And they're all going to spread out. And the whole city is celebrating with these two as they go. Okay? When they get where they're going, they're going to sort of another place. Where they're all going to have a celebration. Just the wedding party. The, 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 the men and the women are going to enter into the house. And they're going to stay there for seven days. There's no honeymoon. And we're like, heck no. Well, there's no honeymoon. Their friends are with them for seven days. And for the next seven days, they're going to eat, they're going to drink, they're going to party, they're going to sing, they're going to dance, and they're going to celebrate the lives of these two and their entrance into the world as one. And in all of this, it is by far the most exciting event. You would attend maybe one, maybe two of these in your life. Um, If you were lucky, you'd go to more than two. The importance of these things could not be overestimated. And to somehow bring shame or to somehow bring um, some kind of like um, mistake to this thing. That you didn't, like you didn't prep enough. Um, like you didn't really care enough to think through every detail. You would sit and you would ponder, what's my role? What do I do here? Um, I have to make sure I hold up my end of the bargain from point A to point B to point C all the way to Z. Everything has to be perfect because if I mess up, it's going to bring shame and honor upon me. It's going to insult the bride and groom. It's incredibly important that you do everything right, okay? The picture we have here in our parable today that Jesus tells us is they were waiting and they were waiting. It was getting darker and later. And five of these women didn't prepare adequately. And they didn't know how long negotiations would go on. And they probably didn't think it through enough. And basically, they didn't have enough oil to last for the whole night. And they start working through in their heads. And they think, what am I going to do? The procession's going to show up. And we're going to be traveling as a, as a group. And we're going to spread out. And I'm going to be alone. And I'm going to be in a mass of people holding up my torch. And it's going to run out. And I'm going to set it down. And I'm going to dip, dip it in there to get more oil on, on the rag. And it's not going to light. And everyone around me is going to look at me with disgust and shame. It's going to start off confusion. Like, did you not, did you not prepare? Do you not take this seriously? The union 
of two people, of God and of God and Israel being pictured here. Do you not care about this? Do you not care? So let's pause for a second. Jesus is telling this parable, and this parable is supposed to link sort of the union of the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth coming together um, in the end, making everything right. And there's the picture here. He's sort of calling out. He's saying there are people who don't take seriously and don't honestly care about the union of heaven and earth. They don't. What they're concerned with is trying to figure out when the master's going to come and impress the master. But it's really self-centered. What they're concerned with is getting away with as much as they possibly can, um, with living the life that they want to live, taking part in greed, taking part in um, all of the things that have brought pain and suffering to God's world that God created. And they want to enjoy themselves as much as they can and do the bare minimum and still join in the festivities on the day of reunification. And what he's basically saying is like, you don't care about the union of heaven and earth. It doesn't matter to you. I would argue that is by and large the default setting of American evangelicalism. Is that by and large we don't care about the union of heaven and earth. By and large we have bought into the Gnostic uh, Christianity that says this is all about separating and flying away while hellfire and destruction rains down in this world. That is not what the first century Christians believed. That is not what they practiced. That is not how they believed things were going to go. They fully believed in the restoration of all things. If you want to know what that looks like, go back to January. Beginning of January, I did a three-week series sermon on cosmic hierarchy and, and built a picture of what God's intention was for the world at the beginning and what it will be in the end. And Jesus is telling the story, pointing out, search your hearts. There are many of you who are not concerned with the, with the merging of heaven and earth, with these things coming together. So, back to our story. There are these women and they're, they're realizing the shame is going to come upon them. And I imagine them walking in the crowd and they're holding their torch and they see it going down and they know they don't have any more oil in the jar. And they just begin to cry. They begin to sob because they're being exposed. Everyone can see that they didn't take this seriously, that they never cared, that they did as little as they possibly could and still wanted to enter into the festivities. This was a selfish thing. This was not for the honor of the bride and groom. This was not for the honor of the people there. This was just simply for them. And they look at the other women and they say, I need more oil. And the women say, no, I'm not, I'm not giving you some of my oil. You need to go to the store and you need to buy some oil to the tradesmen who sell oil. This is not them being rude. This is not them being inconsiderate. This is them caring about the honor of the couple. Because if they give them some of theirs, they could all run out. And then you have a husband and wife who are coming together and going to their festivities and all of the bridesmaids have dishonored them. And nobody enters into their celebration. And so they're weeping. And they say, I need some oil. And they run out to buy some oil. And while they're gone, they buy the oil. They come back to fill their lamps. Everyone's gone. And they quickly gather their lamp and they light it and they run down to where the festivities are. And the door is closed and it's locked. It's likely locked on purpose. Because they're mad at these women who didn't care. And they've dishonored. And they were selfish. And they cared nothing for the life that is to come. 
in these two. And they dishonored them. And the door's been shut and the door's been locked. And they come and they pound on the door. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you, I don't know you. Are you getting it now? I don't even know who you are. I thought I did, but I don't. This passage is used a lot in this, this idea of I don't even know you. It's used a lot in ancient, um, ancient Jewish texts basically as a way to treat people as strangers to keep them from approaching you. Like someone you actually do know, I don't know you, is a way of like, don't come near me. I, I, I used to know who you were. It's, it's been revealed to me that I don't. So the story Jesus is telling, everyone standing around listening to it, is feeling the weight of this, and they begin searching themselves. Um, here's the thing. Both of these stories that Jesus tells contain an element of time and preparation. There is something coming. What are you doing in preparation for it? And there's two ways you can, you can sort of prep this. And if I were to sort of graph this, which I did, it would sort of look like this. There's like departure date, and then there's arrival date, and then there's preparation range, right? Um, and in preparation, there are some who do it like this. All right, day one, I'm going to prep because there is a new reality coming, um, and I want to make sure things are as they should be. So starting today, I'm ramping this thing up, and I'm taking part in this thing. It's going to be great. And you care about sort of the space that you're in. You care about the owner of the space, and you're trying to take part. You know they want things a certain way, and so you're going to go ahead and start working towards this. Why? Because you have allegiance that this is the way things should be. You've bought in. You're in. And then there's like that other person, Right? who like hangs out, enjoys themselves, and the very last minute, their phone's like ding, 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 and they're like, oh, I got three hours. Grab the big trash bags. We got to clean up this place, right? And they get to it. Now, the difference between the two is very striking. They both have the same end goal in mind. There's an arrival date coming. But one is working towards a future. One cares. One is working towards something, and the other is avoiding punishment. There are two ways of presenting the gospel. One of them is things are really bad and you're really going to suffer a lot. Pray this prayer and do it constantly and regularly. And do everything you can to earn um, the name which you have been called to be because God's going to be very angry with you if you don't. Or here's the situation you find yourself in. Things are really, really bad for you. I've got the solution. That proposal is rooted in selfishness. Do you want things to go well for you? And the other way to preach the gospel, which is what Jesus did and what the apostles did, is to paint a picture of a world made whole and saying, wouldn't this be better? You don't have to live this other way. I would like to invite you into a new way of being. I would like to invite you into a world of purpose, uh, into a life of living for eternal things, not these temporal things. We're going to call it eternal life. And we're going to invite you into this. And we're going to go ahead and live as things will be now. And we're going to prepare the way of the Lord. We're going to prepare for the day when all will be unveiled, unveiled for everyone. And here's the thing. The reason that people want to know what time mom and dad are coming home, the reason that we want to know what time are, are like if you're married, the, oftentimes the reason, um, and this is, how, this is sometimes how you know you need to work on your marriage, right? Like if, if what time your spouse is coming home, and you're like, what time are they going to be home? Okay. Um, 
at 10 till or 30 till. I'm just going to clean everything up. Um, why? So they're not angry. If your motivation is not making the other person angry, um, things aren't well for you. If your motivation, though, is to make things the way that they always wanted them to be, to bring joy to their heart, to give them a space of peace and goodness, to give them what they've longed for, if that is your motivation, that's a healthy place. Marriage is a reflection of, of us and God. It's a reflection of, of us and other people. And oftentimes, um, our primary goal is to keep people from being disappointed with us or upset with us, to avoid chastisement or punishment. But here's the thing you need to know about God. God is not coercing you into assimilation. God is not interested in threatening you to assimilation. Threatening you into aligning yourself in the way that he has commanded you should be. That is not what God is interested in doing. God is inviting you into a new life-giving future. He says, I want you to know how you were created to be. This is what you were created to be. You are fully equipped and fully made with this in mind, with this experience in mind. And you're living like this. And I would like to invite you to walk away from this and enter into this. And I think you'll find it's more fulfilling. I think you'll find it brings joy. I think you'll find that not only are you filled up, but the people around you are filled up. It's joyful for you and for everyone around you. Um, and it works into so many areas of our life. He's inviting you into a new way of being. I mean, uh, you can pick these things individually and talk about them. Let's talk about money. You could say, oh, God commands that you give money away. How about 10%? That's how much. And uh, to your church. Um, and if you don't do that, you're living in sin and this and this and this. No, no, no. Erase that. God is inviting you into a life of generosity. And when you live a life that is generous, you are not threatened by the absence of money. You are not threatened by the appearance of money in your life. You are not threatened by the money other people have. You're not threatened by any of it. Money has no hold on you if you live a generous life. And you just freely, there's somebody you need, here you go. And you're not entwined and wrapped up in the fear of these things. You could talk about, you could talk about anything. You could talk about relationships and sexuality and say, here's, here's what God is inviting you into. Like, one way that has been described for a very long time is, you handle sex this way, or God's going to be very mad. You're going to be very, very much punished for going outside of this. Or... God is inviting you to take part in painting a picture of the world of God's relationship with humanity, which is, which is receiving not just one piece of somebody. God just didn't receive the piece that he likes about us. This is not just about sex, about you getting sex from somebody. This is about you, like God, receiving all of somebody. Their sexuality, but also their identity and who they are as a human being, their journey, where they have come from, where they are going in the future, and intertwining your existence with their existence till death do us part. That is what you are being invited into. I mean, I guess you're free to reject it. You're still my brother and sister in Christ, and you're still part of the church family. But just like any invitation from God, it, it comes in the form of an invitation 
And the question you need to ask yourself is, what are you walking away from in rejecting it? You have been called and designed to experience something in a way that is holistic from top to bottom. And God is saying, I did this for you. This is a gift. I'm not trying to spoil your fun. I'm trying to give you purpose and meaning and fulfillment in all areas of life. Living by allegiance and faith is not threatening. It's not this threatening command. It's a life-giving invitation. That's what it is. There's, um, there's this question that Luther, the reformer, was asked um, by somebody who wrote him a letter. And the question went like this. It said, um, if the kingdom of God were to fully come, if Jesus were to take his throne tomorrow, what would you do today? If you knew Jesus, this thing was going to end tomorrow, and Jesus was taking his throne tomorrow, what would you do today? He literally said, I'd plant a tree. And if you contemplate this and you think about what he's saying, he's basically, it reflects an understanding that God intends to fix everything. He intends to fix everything. And his answer is basically saying, why would I wait until tomorrow for the good things to come when I could get started on it today? Why would I wait until then to take part in the restoration of all things? Why wouldn't I just do it now? When we align, and here's the thing, when we align our lives with the things of God, when we, okay, so we, we know those who are hungry now, in famine, they will be fed in the kingdom. We know that. We know those who are hurting will be healed. We know those who are broken will be mended. We know those who are alone will find family. We know those who are marginalized now will, 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 will find their place at the center of what God is doing. All those who have been pushed out will be welcomed in. And so, if that is how things will be, then every time you take food to the hungry person, every time you make friends and invite in the lonely person, every time you decenter yourself and, and make a marginalized person the center of, of our work, every time you take something broken and mend it and make it whole, you are in essence planting Luther's tree. That's what you're doing. You're doing it now. What will be in the future? You're starting now. Imagine if we did this as thoroughly as we could and we went ahead and started restoring all the things that are broken that will be restored when things are made whole again. And what if we prepped, it's sort of like if I'm, if I'm in a teleparable and mix a metaphor, like what if we prepped the whole dining room already instead of having Jesus walk in and say, all right, I'm here. Let's have a feast. Uh, uh, get all this, clean this room out. You're going to need this table. You're going to need this many seats. You're going to need silverware and this and that. Here's what we're going to eat. Here's what we're going to do. Instead of that, what if Jesus shows up to the, to, the, to, the, the, to the banquet and he walks in the door and you're there to greet him and you say, Jesus, it's all ready. We've been setting the table. For generations, we have been setting the table. Things are as they should be. Sit down. We'd all love to hear what you have to say. We've been waiting for you. The world has been waiting for this restoration day. But it has not just been waiting. We have been cleaning it up. We've been fixing it. The choices that you make this day matter. We know that things will be a particular way. What if on the day of the Lord, the great day of the Lord, the great hope of the world... What if on that day very little actually needed to change in your general vicinity? What if you looked around and you're like, okay, it's finally come. Oh, but things are already equitable. We've already pushed out the tribalism out of our lives. 
we've already looking at each other, we already look at each other as equals. Everyone's fed. Everyone's health needs are taken care of. Everything is as it should be. You know what that would mean? That would mean you've already been dwelling in the kingdom of God for quite some time. The kingdom of God is at hand. It is available to you now. Right now. The church is God's parable to the world. It is, it is God's poem. It is God's theatrical play is one of the words that Paul uses. The church is God's theater, his play. Everyone is to look at it and see they've got something different. Why are things just and equitable there? Why, are, why is everyone equal? Why is everyone embraced and loved? And why are they so infatuated with this king? Could it be that this king has provided this for them? Why would you wait only to find out that everything in your life has to change for Christ to be fully revealed as king of it? God is inviting you today into a new humanity. You are born again. You are a new, new creation. You are a new creature. Let's take communion. Uh, communion servers, you guys can go ahead and take the elements and spread around the room. Um, as we go to communion today, I'm going to have the Messiah quote up on the screen for you to sit and read and ponder as you prepare for communion. Their statement of like, here's what faith is. I want you to read that. I want you to ponder your life, how you are exercising faith. Is there allegiance involved? Um, I want to invite all of you to take communion with us. It's, um, it's sort of the great equalizer of all of us. No matter what you bring to the table, no matter how holy or, or unholy you are, um, we all bring what we have and we all receive the same thing. And so this week, as we go into communion, as we, as we ponder our week ahead, let us ponder all the ways that our life has not aligned with the kingdom of God, and let us work to align these things now, to live that eternal life in the present, all right? Community service, you guys can come forward. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Guide our time in communion. Help us to pray effectively. Help us to repent fully. Make us whole. Guide us into your, your future. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen.